This is The Defrag. I'm James Parkinson. It's hard to find a professional sport these days that doesn't use some form of technology. Sometimes it's highly visible, like Hawkeye and tennis, but there's a lot of tech that sports fans don't see, like wearable devices used to track and monitor athlete performance. Whether it's used on the field, in training, or maybe to monitor an athlete's sleep patterns, this kind of technology is recording and storing a lot of data. So much data, in fact, that it's not always clear why that information is being collected or if it's ever going to be used effectively. Now, experts are raising ethical and privacy concerns and calling for a review of the way data collection in professional sport is handled. So there's the data types that we've collected for a long time, like event statistics, goal scored, various events like assists in basketball. There's also, in the last decade, been widespread adoption of GPS tracking. So this is what you get when, in Australia, we have the Telstra tracker, which gives you the top fastest players on the field, their maximum speeds, their distances covered. But there's also a huge amount of information that we don't see, that athletes aren't as aware about. And that's information like aspects of their physiology, aspects of their home life revealed through uh, well-being, mental health, sleep, nutrition... And um, it's just a whole pot of data that is sitting in various places. That's one of our concerns and is of various types of sensitivity, um, but very revealing about individuals. Julia Powles is an Associate Professor of Law and Technology at the University of Western Australia. Julia co-chaired an expert working group that's published a discussion for the Australian Academy of Science, which looks into the way athlete data is used in sports. What's an example of a piece of technology that's currently in use in sports and what kind of data is it collecting? So there's a bunch of wearables that are used in sport and they're based on sensors that can be used to identify motion. And I'll give an example in an impact sport that can tell you what kind of speed an athlete has reached, but it can also be used to identify how many times they've also had um, impacts. So you could also reverse engineer from that the number of sub-concussive incidents and collecting all that information at the moment isn't treated as health information by the professional leagues, but we think it really needs to be considered in that fashion. And then there's concerns around what kind of duty of care there is around that information. Right. And so how is this data being used by professional teams and sports institutions? So the really interesting thing is that a lot of it's not being used. Uh, it's being collected really because there's, it's a, you know, an industry where no one wants to miss out on the leading edge. And so there's been widespread adoption and collection of information. Every practitioner we spoke to across the seven major sports we looked at said they have more data than they can meaningfully deal with. And the types of information that they're using generally is to identify at scale what kind of training load has an an athlete experienced, what sort of exposure, and then be able to um, modify their training and rest and so on. But a lot of it's just sitting there. And the problem is that it's being collected and not not um, deleted over time, not managed properly. And we just think it's a, a f- in far greater excess than anyone actually could use, can manage, and certainly beyond what athletes themselves are aware about. And how is this data actually being stored? Is it being stored by sports organisations themselves or by the technology companies, by a combination? So it's probably a bit like how all of us experience technology. You know, you, you might have your devices, but where it all is managed is with a set of third parties who provide cl- cloud services, hardware, 
um, and then analytics. So a lot of it sits in external third-party tech vendors and isn't held at a local level. But it also is being there's there's um, outputs that are then sitting on laptops and phones from practitioners who might leave the sport and take with them reams of highly sensitive information. Where did this kind of rise in so much data come from? How do we get to this point where, you know, sports are desaturated and so much data is being collected without a lot of purpose behind, you know, much of it? I think it's really been that the, the technology has been available. And uh, interestingly, the um, Sex Discrimination Commissioner, who's also the leading human rights official on sport in the country, said that really there's there's a, a sense in sport that um, – win at all costs. And I feel like data has been one of those things. If it could be useful, it's being collected. And it's not really been assessed over time, is it actually useful? And that's really the conversation we're trying to force because the caution of the commissioner is you don't want to do something that's at cost to athletes and that that shouldn't be something that's on the table when we're thinking about performance and outcomes. And here, actually, the the um, search for data is coming at cost to practitioners who are specialists in sports science, they're being replaced by technology products and, and data engineers. And I think that there's a real question, what what value is that contributing? Ultimately, sport is the ultimate kind of paradox when it comes to data and tech because we watch elite sport because these are people who do the unexpected. They're, they're the outliers in society and they they defy any kind of prediction system and that's really I think what our report shows. Coming up, are professional sports relying too much on data and forgetting about the human element in high performance? And why sports might only be the testing ground for data collection and big tech? That's after the break. If you're enjoying this episode of The Defrag and you want to support the work that we're doing, head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a Defrag member. You can get an ad-free version of the podcast, a sticker pack, a regular newsletter and discounts to our merch. Plus, there's a number of other perks depending on your membership level. Becoming a member is really the best way to support the show. It empowers us to produce independent journalism and gives you the best of the podcast without all the noise. So head on over to our website, thedefrag.com, and become a member today. Professional sports are always looking for an edge to maximise athlete performance, prevent injury, and aid recovery. This effort started with very modest goals, but now there's more data available than organisations know what to do with. Was there a point where there was a a breakthrough in this kind of data collection that had a really positive outcome that then spurred them on to say, well, let's just gather everything because if this is useful, then everything else might be? Well, I I was looking for precisely those examples, actually, as we went through this this study. I can't say that there are any that we came across. Um, Probably the the value is often 
you know, technology gets sold on the big promise of being able to solve the big problems. Often it solves a labour problem. So maybe the best case examples are things like instead of knowing how much an athlete has run during training and how fatigued they might be, you can have some measure of it. But of course, it's a quite imperfect measure because if you really want to understand how hard your muscles are working, knowing how many kilometres you've covered is a proxy for that, but it's not the real information you really want. So the other example is uh, mental health check-ins. Ideally, a performance team would be having conversations with their athletes on a pretty regular basis about how they're travelling from a psychological perspective and now they rely on sort of daily surveys and so on. So it gives you, I guess, a a kind of a a crude metric across a, a community but, of course, it doesn't replace the human touch element and it, the risk of it is that we focus so much on the data that we actually forget that it's data about people and that those people are probably a better source of information than whatever is recorded in in quite reductive uh, metrics. Yeah, what are the dangers, I guess, of kind of looking at the numbers too much and forgetting that there are real people, uh, real humans behind all this data? Well, I think it's this kind of beautiful uh, counterpoint in a way to the surge to data and technology. You have an industry that is all about the pursuit of the, the frontier of progress and human performance. And actually what it's telling us this study is that the people the people are what makes the edge and frontier of human performance. It's not data and analytics. And so I think that the danger is we forget that. The danger is that we, it's complicated to understand the human machine. It's complicated to understand the integration of the elements of what kind of workplace are you in, you know, what's going on in the club and at home and in your, the rest of your life and how does that affect an athlete's performance. And because we can collect data about how far they've run and what's going on at, with various um, bodily metrics, we're focused on that instead of the things that are really hard to measure. And we have this um, kind of exploration in the discussion paper of what's the negative space? What are all the things you don't know? You might have a 100,000 data points where a footy player is during the match, but you don't know anything about what's going on with that player. And and we still don't know how to measure, for example, peripheral vision and what makes some players have magic field sense and others not have that field sense. You know, no amount of data is, is able to discern those things. So I think really that's I'm not so alarmist probably about, you know, who could misuse this data, although I think as soon as you're sitting on piles of data that you don't know what it's for, it's, it's a pretty risky thing. But it's mm. more that we've, we've, we've kind of become a bit beholden to data and technology being able to tell us things that, that humans can't tell us. And I think this is, yeah, it's, it's a real, really robust uh, confrontation to that idea. What are some of the the real risks and and ethical problems, I guess, then in in posed by uh, the collection of of this kind of data and and collecting so much of it? Well, I'll be candid. I'm a um, a law professor, and I I the state of this industry is wildly out of step with what the legal requirements are. So there's a there's a risk of actually legal action because um, the information being collected is far in excess, I think, of what is reasonably necessary to be collected, and that's the legal test. Is it reasonably necessary? There's guidance that says just because it's always been collected or just because you're collecting it and it might be useful in the future is not sufficient to meet that test. At the same time, uh, the information is actually health information, and so it's subject to the highest bar in terms of athlete engagement, the ability for athletes to be able to contest that information and remove it if they wish. So I think there is there is a serious risk for clubs and leagues about 
the degree to which they comply with current law. And then I think that the sector is subject to forces beyond sports bodies. So sport tech has grown up in Australia, actually. We're one of the world leaders. But this is a space, and this connects to my larger research interests, where the big tech companies are coming. One of the biggest musculoskeletal modelling units on the planet is in Facebook. Amazon has a huge digital athlete team. And those companies are eyeing what's happening in professional sport and saying, well, we want to get into this domain of tracking minutely people's bodies. Now, they might have something that they can do with it, which is probably to predict things about us and sell us things uh, that is very far from professional sport, which is why I'm, I'm concerned that we're, we, we have an unchecked state in this particular domain of public life. And if we don't rein it in, we might see it cropping up in all sorts of other spaces. Right. So sports is is kind of the, the gateway, I guess, to a lot of this tech being potentially used in, in other realms, whether it's you know other wearable devices or uh, other services that we might use. That's right. And there's been some, it's actually surprisingly resonant. We've heard stories of athletes in each of the continents we looked at, Europe, Australia and North America, of athletes saying, how would you feel if I came into your office and I strung up a bunch of cameras and I put a bunch of devices on your body and they're in your body and they're on your body? And I said, you know, I'm just doing this to improve your performance. And you'd say, I'm good at my job. Let me perform my job, not how I get there. And I think that's a very dangerous turn to focus on minutely observing the way we get somewhere rather than where we get to. So what needs to change then and what's kind of being done at the moment to protect the information of athletes? So the good news is that I don't think we need new laws or anything in this space. Um, the, the existing law, if it was applied in the sector, would be adequate to really change current practices. But it's been really welcomed by player representative groups. So you asked about athletes' interests. They are very strongly represented by player associations and each of the seven national player associations for the sports that we engage with from rugby league to netball to cricket have warmly received the report. They're very alive to the issue and are negotiating on currently several of the sports are negotiating collective bargaining agreements. So I, I think there's been actually the sort of tectonic plates underneath this have moved considerably and the sector's gone, well, actually we've adopted this technology so quickly that we probably haven't thought about a lot of the issues and I think it's really at the right time to have the conversation what do you need to collect can you justify it if not let's start to sunset it and then let's invest in the things that we know really could make a difference for Australian sport and that's probably much more targeted for example clinical studies okay here's the connection between sleep and performance that we think might be viable is it proven in the in the field or concussions another area at the moment the problem is we're collecting all this stuff it's it's too low resolution to be able to really understand human behavior and the risk to athletes which i probably should have mentioned is also decisions that affect their livelihoods get hidden behind numbers and they're not things that they can contest they're not things that they can understand uh, they're just something plucked from from a metric that really isn't measuring the full picture of what's going on so oh uh, yeah i think a much more strategic streamlined human-centered approach is is where we see the sector could take much more leadership Also in the news today, 
Elon Musk is being sued over his delay in disclosing his purchase of Twitter shares last month. Musk has so far purchased 9.2% of the business, but delayed filing paperwork, letting other investors know his stake. Investors are required to disclose when they pass the 5% threshold within 10 days, as his knowledge could influence the stock price. Musk was due to file by March 24th, but delayed his paperwork until early April when he'd hit 9.1%, meaning he might have got the additional 4.1% at a discounted rate. When Musk did disclose his shares, Twitter stock rose by 27%. Now, a shareholder is suing Musk on behalf of all Twitter shareholders who sold shares during this period. Mark Bain Rosella alleges in federal court that by delaying his paperwork, Musk effectively cheated shareholders out of the gains that were realised when Musk's disclosure was made public. The SEC is surely to be looking into this issue as well, but any penalty is likely to be small in comparison to the gains Musk made after he disclosed. And former NASA astronaut Scott Kelly has launched an NFT project called Dreams Out of This World to raise funds for Ukraine. The collection contains 3,333 digital postcards and celebrates Kelly's 340 days in space. Some of the NFTs are also linked to ownership of physical items that Kelly actually wore in space. The collection sold out within hours, raising half a million dollars to support the efforts in Ukraine. The Defrag is a production of Lawson Media. The show today was hosted by me, James Parkinson, and produced by Christopher Lawson. If you want to catch up on previous episodes or to sign up for our newsletter, head across to the website, thedefrag.com. That's all the news for today. Catch you tomorrow.